I'm just going to use this mic because I can't hear out of this ear, but now with this mic I can hear better. Um, I want to welcome you for the, uh, for the Penn Women's Committee. We're glad to see you all here. Uh, and uh, uh, we feel that the people on this side of the audience will be introduced to the people on that side later on. So <laughs> you're not separated for life, okay? Uh, though you can't see each other. Uh, we're going to begin with a reading uh, by Lady Borton. And it's a, great, uh, it's a great happiness and an honor that she could come and be with us today. Um, uh, she's a, a person who has uh, um, sort of put our life where her head is and uh, 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 written about it and, uh, uh, and brought, to, brought to all of us uh, the, uh, the kind of daily life of, uh, of uh, terror and fear and told it to us in such, in such easy language that uh, we understand it so well that we are also frightened by it. Uh, we're not calmed by it at all, and uh, that's a good thing. Uh, she went in 69, uh, uh, she went to Vietnam and worked in Quang Nai province, which was a pretty terrible place. As I, as I remember it in the papers, it was a place that was always being, uh, that they planned to make into a giant parking lot for, um, for um, uh, 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 planes, and uh, they failed, thank goodness, but, uh, but they wrecked the land pretty well. And she lived there for a couple of years and then came back. And, uh, and in 1980, um, unable really to uh, forget about these people among whom she lived for those years, and uh, unable really to, uh, uh, to walk away from the wholeness, from the wholeness of their life and of their suffering, uh, she returned to work in one of the refugee camps in, uh, Mele in uh, Malaysia, in uh, Pulau Bidong, uh, where, where she worked for some time, and, uh, and was able, in a sense, to see uh, some of the rest of the story. Um, uh, uh, this is her book. This is, this is the book, which I want to show you. It's called Sensing the Enemy. And, uh, uh, and she's written about these, about these children, these women and these men, uh, and uh, returned from there, where she now works in Appalachia, Ohio, and, uh, and, uh, and drives a, uh, a bus bringing retarded children to their school every day. Um, uh, I can tell you some more wonderful things about her, but I think we'd like to hear her read, really. And then you'll, um, as, as this book is called, Sensing the Enemy, you'll, you'll, you'll all sense the true human being and the friend in Lady Borden.
A year ago, I was in, can you hear? What's going on? Yeah. A year ago, I was in My Tau, which is a province capital in southern Vietnam, on the occasion of International Women's Day. And I went to a large meeting put on by the Women's Union and was asked to give a speech in Vietnamese. I was pretty rusty in Vietnamese, but I did this. I wore an alzai, which is a long, flowing Vietnamese dress used for special occasions. It's, it's a garment that can make even me feel graceful. And uh, gave a speech. And the Vietnamese laughed when they were supposed to, which was a great comfort to me. And they clapped when they were supposed to. I was there interviewing mostly women, but also men, ordinary villagers, for a book called After Sorrow, which is about the lives of the ordinary people of Vietnam. It's the other side of the story from Sensing the Enemy. Everyone I talked with at the end of the interview, uh, the women particularly, would take me by the hand, which is a very common gesture in Vietnam. Women are very physically affectionate with each other. And they would always look me directly in the eye, which Vietnamese don't do as much as we do. And they would always send a message back to America. And it would be something to the effect of, when you return home, please tell our sisters, and that would always be the word they would use, our sisters and our brothers in America, how much we want to be able to visit them, and how we think about them, and care about them, and how we send our greetings to them. I'm going to read a couple of short pieces that were in the HERS column this last January. They're from this current book called After Sorrow. The first one's the prologue. I've never lived in a house with a television except for one year. That was 1967 when I was in my mid-twenties. Every evening I watched the war on the news. Vietnamese refugees, their faces contorted, their voices anguished, streamed across that flickering blue screen and into my living room. Their cries haunted me during the day and stayed with me deep into the night. The job I took two years later with the Quakers in Quang Ngai, a dusty South Vietnamese town swollen with refugees, included a program that made artificial arms and legs for civilian amputees. One of our patients was a widow whose name meant springtime. Springtime was my age, then 28. Her older son, a 10-year-old, was a paraplegic with withered legs, while the other boy, a toddler, had plump legs peppered with shrapnel. The same mind that wounded the boys had turned springtime into a double amputee. During flood season, I moved this family back into the refugee camp. There was no driving in. I started carrying the older boy, the paraplegic. The water swirled around my thighs. I left him with his grandmother and went back for the younger boy, and then for his mother. I carried springtime on my hip the way she'd been carrying her sons when she stepped on the mine. Her stumps felt like flippers around my waist. I could smell my own sweat and tried not to let my shortness of breath show as with bare feet I groped beneath the water for the path along the paddy dike. Springtime played with my hair, drawing a coppery ringlet out to its full length and laughing when it sprang back. As I trudged along the dike, 
I kept looking at Springtime's mother and the two boys gazing at us across the water from their hut, which was made of aluminum sheeting that had been printed for soda and beer cans. The sheeting on one side of the hut announced Coca-Cola repeatedly in red. The sheeting on the other said Schlitz in brown. I could tell the distance to the hut was too great. I had no choice but to ease Springtown down into the water that covered the paddy dike and, breathing hard, sit down next to her. Side by side, we rested on that dike, laughing as the muddy water lapped around our waists. I never saw television coverage of the boat people exodus after the change of government in 1975, though I did see parts of that story in person. Unable to exercise memories from the war, I'd returned to Asia. I remember standing on the jetty of Bidong Island, the largest refugee camp in Malaysia for Vietnamese boat people. It was 1980. I was the camp's health administrator. A Vietnamese boat appeared on the horizon. As the boat drew closer, I watched it riding perilously low in the water, its passengers gripping the cabin roof like bees clinging in layers to the face of a hive. The voices grew more excited as the boat came closer, and the boat's hull quivered when it touched the jetty. The captain, a small man with an ashen face, stepped onto the dock. He stood on one foot and then the other, running both hands through his stiff gray hair as he spoke of the 14 passengers who had died en route. Most died of thirst, he said, looking at the ripples lapping against the jetting piling. Some drank seawater. One woman went delirious and threw herself into the sea. I glanced into the cabin. Inside, a woman with a baby at her breast hunkered in the bilge. A six-year-old girl with wispy hair clung to a rib in the hull. Fuel cans floated in the bilge water, which smelled of diesel and vomit. A Vietnamese longshoreman lifted the wispy-haired girl onto the jetty. When she collapsed, a Vietnamese man unloading pack rations scooped up the child and ran with her towards the island. I followed. In the camp hospital, I fed the child sips of water. Her name meant flower. Vietnamese longshoremen brought in more people on stretchers and more still. I removed flower's wet clothes. Her skin was soft and white and wrinkled, and her hair was stiff with salt. That afternoon, I found Flower outside the hospital where she stood watching the cook serve tea from a steaming vat. The next day, I went to check on Flower, but she was gone. I looked for her among the thousands who thronged the camp's paths, but I never saw her again. Now that sow over there, the one with a nick on her snout, Bloom said, scratching the inside of a pig's ear. She'll throw a big litter. Always has, anyway. It was the spring of 1987. The pig pen stood next door to the house where I was staying in the village of Kanfu, 75 miles southeast of Hanoi. 
Bloom, the veterinarian of the cooperative, was in her mid-40s. A few minutes later, we were sitting on benches at the wooden table inside the house, sipping tea. The afternoon light threw shadows on the grass mat on my board bed and transformed the mosquito net into a filmy canopy. Bloom spoke of her husband, who'd marched south over the Ho Chi Minh Trail with the North Vietnamese Army. I received one letter, she said. Work hard at home, he wrote. Take care of our children. Two years after Key's death, Bloom continued, I received a small package. Key had sent three books so our children could learn to read. If there was a letter, it was lost. She looked out the window at the fields of peanuts, then, brashed, then brushed a strand of hair from her eyes. His bones never came home. <coughs> Bloom bent her head. Her shoulders quivered. Damp hair curtained her face. If I were a good journalist, I thought as I glanced at Bloom's slumping shoulders, I would press her for details. I'd be ruthless. I would dig for raw feeling. A fly settled on my teacup, rubbed its hind legs together, and then took off again, buzzing. The tape recorder hummed. From outside the window came the rippling sound of children's voices and the heavy trod of a water buffalo. I let my hand rest on Loom's shoulder. Tell me about your children, I said and about the animals. This is the second piece, also from the hers column. Two movie projectors run in my head. The dominant one rolls out the sights and sounds and smells of the present in powerful color. The other projects cracked images from the past in faint black and white. Recently, I was sitting in a restaurant listening to a friend's story when the projectors changed dominance. The aroma of eggplant parmesan filled the restaurant. A candle flew flickering light over our booth in the corner. Robert was telling his tale of hunting Viet Cong at night in the Mekong Delta when that black and white movie in my mind took over. As Robert spoke, I could hear the putt-putt of his Navy patrol boat in the ominous silence of the Mekong, could hear the rifle fire and smell the acrid gunpowder. I could see the stubs of defoliated palm trees silhouetted against an exploding sky. We'd sprayed every leaf, Robert was saying. His beard was touched with silver. Wrinkles edged his eyes. The VC still hid. I glanced away, my eye catching my own image in the mirror behind Robert. The brocade decor of the restaurant dissolved. Instead, I saw myself standing once again in the specimen room of a hospital outside Ho Chi Minh City, formerly Saigon. It was 1983. The smell of formaldehyde tinged the air. In the dim light, I could make out glass crocks lining each wall, floor to ceiling, wall to wall, row upon row. Each crock cradled a full-term baby 
One infant had four arms, another a bowl in place of her cranium, a third a face on his abdomen, a fourth his navel protruding from his forehead. All the babies had been born in the early 1980s to women from provinces heavily sprayed with Agent Orange. A Vietnamese doctor opened the wooden shutters. Sunlight flowed in, turning the glass crocks with their silvery liquid into mirrors that shimmered row upon row. I shrank back. In each mirror, I could see that I was my normal self. We called in airstrikes, Robert said, punching his palm with his fist. The waiter set down cream and sugar. He poured coffee. The rich aroma of espresso floated over the restaurant. My lapse had been momentary. Its images receded once more into memory. Vietnam memories can be strident. Often, they defy words, blocking communication and tangling with a comfortable Western lifestyle. Sometimes they lie silent, reflecting our collective reluctance to place politics aside and address the continuing human effects of the war. Psychologists have given names, Vietnam Syndrome, Flashback, Post-Traumatic Stress Syndrome, to the experience of that second movie projector dominating conscious reality. Such terms make the emotional experience sound foreign, as if we must know war in order to experience the disorienting ambush of memory. Anyone who has spent extended time in another culture returns home to the emotional unrest of double images running simultaneously. And those of us who've always lived here have at some time felt overwhelmed. We've all felt haunted by the death of a relationship, the loss of a child. We can all be surprised when our inner life spins unexpectedly outward. I learned through experience to control those moments. It's easy enough in my own home to avoid known stimuli, such as mirrors. In a restaurant or a friend's house, I've learned to choose a place briskly before I'm the last one seated. I settle down with the mirrors behind me, the way a combat veteran may sit with the wall at his back, his face towards the unpredictable entrance. Other stimuli are less easily subdued. One recent evening, I stopped by the local supermarket the crowds in the aisles were intimidating. I felt besieged by displays of color, distracted by the smells of pizza, baking bread, and budding roses. I pushed my cart past banks of broccoli and cabbages. When I reached for a head of lettuce, an automatic freshener nozzle sprayed ice water on my wrist. That second movie projector in my mind shifted on screen. Suddenly, I was back, pushing a cart of protein supplements through a refugee camp. It was the late 60s, and I was visiting a Red Cross project in the central highlands of Vietnam. The refugees were pre-literate tribespeople who had lived in huts of leaves, hunting and raising their food by slash and burn agriculture. 
Now they camped in tents, surrounded by barbed wire. The sun beat down on the tents. The heavy canvas gave off an odor like hot road tar, clogging my throat. The open latrines buzzed with flies. I passed three children hunkering in the brazen light. Their eyes were glazed beyond begging. It was too quiet for so many people. I paused near a woman doing fine embroidery in red and blue and orange. Her bare breast trembled every time she pulled the needle back through the black cloth. A girl of two lay next to the woman, naked in the dirt. The child's dark hair was touched with orange, a symptom of advanced malnutrition. With her bloated belly, she looked like a butternut squash cast out on the compost pile. I pushed on with my cart of supplements, knowing that within hours the child would be dead. In a supermarket, I see that child as I push my cart past tiers of choices. Her face takes over cans of baby formula and boxes of cereal. Of course, now Vietnam has peace. Now Vietnamese have enough to eat. But still, the intrusion of this outdated memory is instructive. It reminds me that what I've witnessed years ago still exists, but elsewhere, in Nicaragua, Gaza, Afghanistan, Lebanon, Iraq, Iran, Ethiopia. Memory jars that protective routine of my easy lifestyle. Thank you. You've all found your seats now. Uh, the East German writer Christa Wolf tells us, for the past two years, I have been tracking a key word, Cassandra. What became of her explorations is a rich and passionate reimagining, really a reinvention of the Trojan War through the voice of the seer who was doomed not to be believed, who was scorned and punished for her truthful vision. In the novel, Cassandra's first-person narration is a bridge spanning the distance between those days of violence and our own. War, Wolf has Cassandra say, gives its people their shape. In the American edition, which looks like this, although there are some hardcovers, uh, the novel is accompanied by four essays originally delivered as lectures on poetics at the University of Frankfurt. The essays take the form of a record of Wolf's trip to Greece in 1982 when she did the research for the book, 
their diaries, a letter, various forms, all examining why she was drawn to her subject and its pertinence to the threat of war today. We chose Cassandra because it so aptly illustrates the theme chosen for this day by international pen, war and peace, male and female perspectives. It takes a war, the Trojan War, which is traditionally seen through male eyes, narrated on the heroic scale for the most part, and which has supplied so much of the context and symbolism for our Western literature. And it transposes it to the inner voice of a woman who to me anyway is, is like a writer because she has to find a way to say convincingly what she knows. Wolf calls Cassandra a fabric. What we hope will happen here today is a peaceful, or maybe not so peaceful, <laughs> unraveling of its several strands, the nature of technology, male and female ways of being in the world, the image of the warrior hero in literature, and the, crucially, the problem of how to write about war in our time, which we just had a wonderful example of. Perhaps un understanding its design can help us as writers and as men and women, for as Wolf writes, the aesthetic of resistance to it all has yet to be developed. Now, I just want to briefly introduce this wonderful panel uh, and I, in the order in which they'll speak, so I will not interrupt the, the talks. I'll give it to you all at once. Carolyn Heilbrunn, right here, is Avalon Foundation Professor in the Humanities at Columbia University. She's the author of a number of books, including The Garnett Family, about Constance Garnett, the translator of Russian literature, and other members of the family, toward a recognition of androgyny, reinventing womanhood, and her newest book, Writing a Woman's Life, about biographies of women, will be published this spring by Norton. She has also written eight mystery novels under the name of Amanda Cross. Wesley Brown has written poetry, stories, essays, and the novel Tragic Magic. He teaches at Rutgers University. His play, Boogie, Boogie Woogie and Booker T, was produced last year by the New Federal Theater and just recently by the Blue Heron Theater, the last performance of which I attended with great pleasure and which apparently made so great an impression on some higher powers that the lights went out. We all want our work <laughs> to make an impact, but I think in Wesley's case, the impact was unprecedented. Baharati Mukherjee has written two novels, the Tiger's Daughter and Wife. Oh, I, excuse me, I must preface this by saying that Luisa Valenzuela could not be with us. She was called away to Argentina. So we are very fortunate to have Baharati Mukherjee. Her two novels are The Tiger's Daughter and Wife and A Book of Stories, Darkness. Her new collection of stories, The Middleman, will be published this spring by Grove Press. With her husband, Clark Blaze, she has written two books of nonfiction, Days and Nights in Calcutta, and The Sorrow and the, Pit, Sorrow and the Terror, which is about the June 1985 uh, destruction of an Air India plane off the coast of Ireland. And that too will be out in paperback, I think, in the spring. She teaches at Queens College. Norman Rush is the author of a book of stories, Whites. He's a longtime member of the War Resisters League, was a conscientious objector during the Korean War, and was imprisoned for nine months in 1950. He's working on a novel. And uh, so now I will leave it to the panelists, starting with 
Carolyn Heilbrunn. And I guess you have to have this. Uh, in the book, <coughs> Lynn mentions that I recently finished, uh, I wrote about what I called my generation of women writers, those born between 1922 and 1932. In my book, I was chiefly interested in that generation's break from silence into autobiographical truth. Today, I want to think of them primarily as the generation who grew up with World War II as the major experience of their adolescence. And to add to that generation, Christa Wolf, born in Germany in 1929. Christa Wolf, like the American writers of that generation, demonstrates most powerfully in Cassandra that the search for a language for female anger in the face of patriarchal demands was close to, if not identical with, the search for a language of peace as opposed to the patriarchal language of war. Wolf has recognized Cassandra as the paradigmatic figure of my generation because she did not believe the patriarchy, and although she told the truth, the patriarchy was not equipped to believe her. Wolf shares with her generation of American women writers a wish totally to deny the language and stories of war and to consider the unexpressed truth where peace lies. Having discovered Cassandra, Wolf wrote of her, quote, I believed every word she said, so there was still such a thing as unqualified trust. 3,000 years melted away so the gift of prophecy conferred on her by the God stood the test of time. Only his verdict that no one would believe her had passed away. I found her believable in another sense. It seemed to me that she was the only person in the Oristia who knew herself. An American writer of that generation, Jane Cooper, born 1924, wrote of her youth I was still living within a social pattern, or at least a pattern of expectations, as clearly defined as the physical world had once seemed to be, according to Mercator's projection. Out of the tension between that enclosing conservative order and my own expanding vision and senses grew what I have come to recognize as the strongest and most valid part of my work. Wolf asks, to what extent is there really such a thing as women's writing? And answers, to the extent that women, for historical and biological reasons, experience a different reality than men. Cassandra says, it was not my birth that made me a Trojan. It was the stories told in the inner courts. So Adrian Rich speaks in diving into the wreck of a book of myths in which our names do not appear. Why, Wolf asks, did Cassandra ask for the gift of prophecy? Why do we call someone a Cassandra when he prophesizes doom? Why did a woman's name bear that stigma when at the same time and for the same reason Laocoon, the Trojan priest of Apollo, issued warnings and prophesied dooms? 
Cassandra became the sign for my generation of women as they learned to speak what could not be believed. What they spoke, if believed, would have overturned the aims and especially the warlike aims of the patriarchy. Women's anger speaks not only for their own being, but attacks the love of war. Who dared believe us? We, like Cassandra, wanted the gift of prophecy, and what we wanted to prophesy is peace and its possibility. You can tell when a war starts, Cassandra says, and becoming radical in any combination. Of not having wanted to admit their anger. It's unlikely that any young woman poet today would simply suppress her work as I did. I take the point we are all making here to be that we want our prophecies heard, and we know that to do that, we must change the stories. Wolf as for the Iliad, human emotion on a bare chronology ruled by the law of battle and carnage. That standard women shines through only in the gaps between the descriptions of battle. Wolf said, it was my work on Cassandra that made me realize how in the Semitic Christian religions women had for centuries been assigned the role of slaves. Assigned that role, perhaps, so that they could not speak against war and for peace. But the writers of my generation have all become Cassandra's, have answered her prayer, which is this. Send me a scribe, or better yet, a young slave woman with a keen memory and a powerful voice. Ordain that she may repeat to her daughter what she hears from me, that the daughter in turn may pass it on to her daughter, and so on so that alongside the river of heroic songs, this tiny rivulet too may reach those far away, perhaps happier people who will live in times to come. I'd like to I guess, respond to um, my reading of uh, Crystal Wolf's Cassandra with some uh, random and not necessarily in order um, impressions that I've had, things that I've, I've thought about since reading, uh, reading the novel. Uh, one of the first things that that comes to mind for me in reading um, Cassandra is to, ch I guess was to, I began thinking about some of, if there are differences in perspectives uh, that men and women have toward peace and war, that if I could find somewhere where there was a, a sense of what some of the differences uh, between men and women that does not attempt necessarily to, to be punitive, that maybe I could find my way back toward 
what, why it is that, that um, men find themselves in the position of, of uh, going to wars uh, throughout the, throughout for thousands of years. And the book that, come, that came to mind uh, is um, a novel by Zora Neale Hurston, Their Eyes Are Watching God. And the opening of that novel uh, sort of posits uh, Zora Neale Hurston's view of the differences between men and women. And I think it bears on um, some of the differences in perspectives and attitudes and behavior when confronted with conflicts such as war. Um, the novel opens, ships at a distance have every man's wish on board. For some, they come in with the tide. For others, they sail forever on the horizon, never out of sight, never landing, until the watcher turns his eyes away in resignation, his dreams mocked to death by time. This is the life of men. Now women forget all those things they don't want to remember and remember everything they don't want to forget. The dream is the truth. Then they act and do things accordingly. In the case of Krista Wolf's novel, it seems that for Cassandra as well, the dream is the truth, that it's not something out there to be possessed, to be dominated, to, as a way of finding out who you are at someone else's expense. And that the gift of Cassandra of prophecy becomes unacceptable to the men of Troy. And they choose instead to begin a war defending an abstraction or the invention of Helen and at the end refusing to believe that what they were fighting for was a lie. It seems that the causes of the Trojan War that uh, was witnessed by Cassandra has uh, unfortunately been duplicated uh, too numerous, uh, too numerous, too numerous uh, uh, times for uh, to even count. And I think that Audre Lorde has spoken very insightfully about the dilemma in which Cassandra finds herself. Um, and she has said, quote, men who are afraid to feel keep women around to do their feeling for them while dismissing women for their supposedly inferior capacity to feel deeply. It's often said that, that it's women who, who are shaped by their, whose identity is shaped by their connection to men. And it seems that men as well have been shaped by our own idea of what being a man is supposed to be. And that that if going to war for men be, is an abstraction that we very readily lend ourselves to, then it seems to follow that our identity is, is as well shaped by uh, the exercise of power. 
and uh, which brought to mind for me uh, something that Henry Kissinger was quoted was uh, quoted as saying that power is the ultimate aphrodisiac. And what is, uh, I guess, quite distressing about that is that that for, I guess, many men, and I guess as articulated by uh, Henry Kissinger, that if expressions of generosity, giving, affection, tenderness are only to be defined in the ways in which a man does not put himself at risk, is not vulnerable, that that, that, that kind of, the arousal of sensations can only be through domination, then it's, it becomes even clearer why um, men find themselves often in the position of, of seeing not only war, but relationships generally as situations where they must dominate. Um, now, not wanting, I guess, to, to idealize um, things that have been, you know, that have been consigned to women, but it seems to me that, that the extent to which um, men do not at any point in their lives um, assume responsibility for or to anyone, it seems that there's a direct connection between that and being unable, I guess, to, to be more cautious about um, the, the things that the, if, about war and the things in which the men find themselves in. Um, that nurturing, it seems to me, is seems to be a way in which human beings have of not being that readily um, open to um, turning either themselves or other people into abstractions. And that if you are in a situation where you are responsible for or to another person, it seems that one is less likely to either give themselves over or anyone else who they are responsible to and for to um, situations which are inherently destructive. And it seems that, that even in uh, uh, the most recent, I guess, experience of, of the Vietnam War, that the nurturing that took place uh, among the men and women who fought in that war seemed to be a nurturing that took place between themselves, that it became a question of looking, taking responsibility to and for one another as, unfortunately, the only way in which that nurturing could take place, and that there was, there was a convergence, finally, of, I guess, the, the outcry in this country to um, bring the Vietnam War to an end, and in an, on another level, by the, by the men in the majority who were fighting it, which is, I guess, the personal desire of, the, of men who fought in <coughs> Vietnam uh, converge with the 
I guess, collective desire of a large segment of the American population to get out of that war. And for the men who fought that, I guess it was to get out alive. Um, and if there's any, I guess if there's any, um, uh, anything, I guess one of the things that can be said uh, uh, about the experience of the Vietnam War is that if for no other, if, if for no other uh, result than if it allowed men, at least for the first time, or for one But I think that that uh, I um, have taken from the uh, reading of uh, Cassandra. For those who came in late, let me quickly announce that I'm not Luisa Valenzuela. I'm Bharati Mukherjee. And because the two basic experiences that shaped me as a reader of fiction and as a writer are the colonial and post-colonial experience and the discarding of one culture and transplanting myself in the new world, I would like to augment the subtitle of today's panel with more than men's and women's perspectives. What I would like to add is racial and colonial perspectives. What I am, who I am, has been totally uh, formed by the colonial and immigration experiences. I'm probably, quite literally, the newest American writer in this room. I was naturalized just last week. And the responses I have to Krista Wolf's wonderful book, Cassandra, are in that context of being an American writer who, unlike most American writers of my generation, has had to live through fierce wars of liberation and bloody declines of empires. What struck the most responsive chord in me was Wolf's fearless appropriation of big political issues, issues of gender, race, religion, and colonial ambition in fiction. At Columbia University last summer, in a meeting with a group of touring young authors from 20 countries, the panel of American writers was asked, why do we no longer read you? Faulkner and Hemingway were read by everyone. American movies and American music have never been more influential. But where are your writers? And I ask myself, why aren't there more Lady Bordens writing about Agent Orange in fiction? Where are the American Krista Wolfs and the Nadine Gordimers? Where is the amplitude of vision, the energy and urgency of sheer invention? Of course, we can all name our favorites, but that doesn't alter the fact that the mainstream, big advance, well-promoted American novel 
has lost the power to transform the world's imagination. Given the sociology of publishing in the United States, serious American fiction becomes all too often middle-brow, middle-class, polite, shallow, inoffensive fiction. John Cheever tries to address this in a story I like very much called The Country Husband. In one typical Cheeverian suburb, affluent suburb, the protagonist, Francis Weed, attends a cocktail party at his neighbors, the Farkersons. Note the names. They have a foreign maid who serves them cocktails and hors d'oeuvres. The foreign maid looks vaguely familiar to the protagonist, Francis Weed, and he remembers that he had seen her at the end of the Second World War in a small French village being publicly chastised, head shaved, spat upon, the whole humiliation for having fraternized with a German commandant during the occupation. Cheever's character and seemingly Cheever's readers cannot bring themselves to talk about that incident, about the, and I'm quoting, world where the cost of partisanship had been death or torture. Again, I'm quoting, if, the, if he had told the story at the dinner table, it would have been a social as well as a human error. Another quote, the people in the Farkerson's living room seemed united in their tacit claim that there had been no past, no war, that there was no danger or trouble in the world, end of quote. This is the dangerous and defensive euphoria of too much of contemporary American literature. Unseemly, impolite fiction, I suppose, is unsellable. I'm tempted to see a dangerous social agenda behind this kind of bland, courteous, suburban fiction. It is nativist fiction. It speaks in whispers to the initiated. As a newcomer, I can feel the chill of this kind of American fiction as though it is designed to keep out minorities with too much story to tell. Wolf applies Marxist reasoning and feminist reasoning to this question of aesthetics. Can a woman writer be true to her Cassandra self, to her sentient and political self, and at the same time abide by the rules of what she terms artifact aesthetics? Women are workers. Their anxieties don't provide productive results, don't result in artifacts. What is art is controlled by males, just as what is history is controlled by the managerial class. This alienation between artist, artifact, and aesthetics is intimately felt by those of us who grew up in colonized societies. And in colonial rhetoric, whole cultures, whole races are dismissed as or reduced to the status of effeminate. The aesthetics for us were set in London or Paris, not in our hometowns. 
anything foreign was automatically considered inferior. And the colonizer, being competitive, believed when necessary in cutting thumbs off, and I mean that quite literally in the textile industry, to stop competition. Wolf is aware that the enemy can engage in violent tactics. In her example, the enemy lives by attacking. This idea fascinates me. The patriarch, the white racist colonizer, is a vampire. He needs blood. He attacks not out of heroic male properties such as ambition and valor, but because he's afraid to die. That seems to be Christoph Wolff's point. In Wolff's imagery, the white patriarch then is a thief and a murderer. This common experience of having been robbed, of having been driven to despair and suicide, bonds us disparate minority groups who believe in what she calls magic, in authenticity of feeling, in alternate gods and alternate realities. I'm quoting Wolf now. There is a deadly despair among the Papuans, she writes, a kind of suicide, because they believe that the whites seized all their possessions by magical means. He has taken my possessions from me, my laughter, my tenderness, my ability to feel joy, my compassion, my ability to help, my animality, my radiance. He has stamped out every sprout of all these things until they stopped sprouting. But why does someone do that? I don't understand." End of quote. The answer, at least in the context of colonialism, is surely very simple. And instead of explaining, I would refer you merely to the Hari Kumar, Ron Merrick torture scene in the prison cell from Paul Scott's, the TV version of Paul Scott's uh, The Jewel and the Crown. Violence, hate, love, competitiveness, master and slave are all intimately inclined. But Krista Cassandra Wolf's final prophecy is very pessimistic. And this is what she says in the last essay in the book. The whites are coming. The whites are landing. And if they are repulsed again, they will return again once more. No revolution and no resolution and no foreign currency statute will help. They will come in spirit if they can no longer come in any other way. And they will be resurrected in a brown and a black brain. It will still always be the whites even then. They will continue to own the world in this roundabout way. I think she's wrong. I don't at all share her pessimism about the future. I think the pessimism comes out of the millennialist underpinnings of the Christian axis. The mainstream European or American may be forced to interpret every event in the light of the millennium, of a final judgment. But those of us, us Papuans and Aborigines, who have come to America trailing other religions, our faith and magic intact, interpret the same events from a wholly different perspective. 
All around me, I see the face of America changing, as must you if you take the number seven train to Queens. I had, that's the train I used to go to work. And soon, this wild, disruptive perspective of new Americans from non-traditional immigrant countries will burst through the smooth civil surfaces of American literature. Wolf is wrong in her final prophecy. We, the minorities, we who have survived war and arduous odysseys, are in the process of writing guerrilla fiction. We are subverting the canons of literature. Turn your attention to the minority voices. Watch for the resurrection of magic. the real question that is asked by Krista Wolf in this book, and a question which I think she fails ultimately to answer, is why Cassandra is not listened to? Why are her prophecies not attended to? Is this not? How's that? Okay? I'll, I'll repeat what I said. I think Krista Wolf in this book raises uh, and dramatizes the essential question of Cassandra's attempt to uh, persuade the, the males of Troy uh, not to proceed with this war. She does it at several points, but that she fails to, to truly answer the question of, of why they do not listen to such perceptibly good advice. In fact, in the book, all of the female characters uh, are in possession of a, a, a sound grip on uh, the, except for the ones who are besotted with love, uh, have, a, have a sound grip on the realities of the situation, uh, including the Queen Hecuba and a variety of other female characters. They all know that this thing is wrong. Uh, but somehow the message cannot be perceived or received by the men. Now, I think it's important to answer that question. I want to approach it in uh, by taking two quick detours. The first is that uh, there is, I think, a tendency when you read uh, Cassandra to come out of it with a notion that what, uh, what I would call an essentialist position, which is that peace and the desire and the drive for peace is somehow bioculturally more appropriate for women than it is for men and can be derived from women more easily than it can be derived from men. There's a sense in which that's true and there's a sense in which it's not true. The history of women as auxiliaries to the war-making process in the world as we know it is endless. Uh, the, the examples can be multiplied enormously and uh, there's no need to, to, to go into them. If there were a kind of biocultural or biological drive on the part of women to uh, repeatedly oppose war and war situations, the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom would be a mass organization. It's not. It's a tiny organization and it's uh, in, in continual trouble. Uh, there is 
there is, I think, in the, in the peace movement and among writers who support the peace movement and are connected with peace and the pursuit of peace, a, a sense, a kind of sympathy with, with an essentialist position. And I think it has some dangers that I'd like to point out in just a minute. One of the reasons that Cassandra is not listened to and through her, one of the reasons that Krista Wolf has not got it quite right about men and war is that the attractions of war and the war-making apparatus and metaphors of war and institutional metaphors for war, uh, that relationship is much more complex than she has managed to illustrate here or to dramatize. When I went to prison in 1950, uh, I noticed an unusual thing, which is that there was in each, as I was moved from the county jail in uh, Los Angeles through a series of other county jails until, until I reached my destination in two, at the federal prison in Tucson, Arizona, I went through a repeated process of uh, a passage through brutal testing in each situation, each new jail. These, a, a jail, after all, is a totally male-run institution, and its inhabitants in the, in the, are, are all male. So here you have, in essence, a crystallized form of, uh, of male relationships. In every county jail that I passed through, there was a, a, a period of brutal testing challenge that I had to pass through in each case. When I reached the federal prison in Tucson, the same thing was repeated. And even among the community of eight or 10 conscientious objectors with whom I was imprisoned, people who had preceded me there and constituted my universe of opposition to war, again I was placed through a milder but still recognizable form of testing. What is this thing that happens? What is this? What is this business and what does it have to do with, uh, with, uh, with anything, really? <coughs> the same kind of hazing process takes place in, in, in fraternities, in gangs, in, uh, in uh, uh, all male, male groups of, uh, of uh, all descriptions and types. And I'll just read uh, its most, uh, one of its most recent manifestations uh, uh, in the British Army. After outbreaks of violence in two of its proudest regiments, the British Army is facing criticism that has, it has allowed a culture of brutality to develop in enlisted ranks. All 550 members of the 2nd Battalion of the Coldstream Guards, one of the, one of the elite bearskin-hatted regiments at Buckingham Palace, were under house arrest during an inquir inquiry into violence this week. Um, I won't give all the details of this, but four soldiers were found guilty in the latest of a series, there are many, many court-martials, series of court-martials arising from beatings and sexual assaults carried out as part of an initiation ceremony by members of the King's own Scottish borders. Two-year pattern of beatings, hazing, suicide, etc., sexual assaults on the new members of the, of the group. Uh, what is this about? And, and why, does it, why does it continue, and what does it have to do with the attachment of men to the war-making institution? Men, many men, I'm generalizing very broadly now, and of course there are exceptions to the categories that I'm, that I'm using, but men fear 
more than anything else, being at the level of helplessness, at the bottom of a pecking order, where they are compared to women, where they are seen as women, when they are understood as women. It is one of the deep and unspoken fears in male life. Uh, this is made evident through the kind of language, what you are in, in, uh, in basic training if you don't complete the, uh, the uh, process with sufficient savagery and, uh, and uh, assiduousness, you are a female genital. The same thing is true in, in prison, the same thing is true in, uh, in uh, fraternities, high school fraternities, college fraternities, and so on. There is a panic, an existing panic, among men not to be seen as women. Now this leads me back to my the question I was raising about the essentialist position, the notion that the peace movement is changed by changing the language and by identifying the drive for peace with something issuing and identified with gender identified with women. That that's, there, there is a paradox involved there that, that uh, I don't have the answer to, but I, but I do want to look at for just a minute. In some respects, the attempt to specify peace and the drive and the desire for peace as something specifically female or specifically appropriate to the female actually strengthens the grasp of the male military apparatus and its metaphors throughout the society. Now, I'm not sure where this comes out in terms of uh, a, uh, an implication for policy. It's, it seems to me to, to raise requirements of great subtlety and sophistication in the way that we proceed to make our arguments that the world should be a more peaceful place. But it seems to me essential that this be kept at the center of consciousness and that two easy readings of books like Crystal Wolf's should not dominate in the, when it comes to the making of uh, the next stage of policy in relation to, to making, making war, turning war into peace. I, I want to I conclude with a grace note. Uh, it's a sort of a pun, as you'll see in a moment. Sorry, yeah, I want to conclude with a grace note. Uh, uh, one thing that this book did for me, which, uh, which I was grateful for, although I don't like to think about these problems, but I, it did force me to think about them. Uh, it made me think about how anybody justifies writing fiction as a full-time profession or avocation. Uh, I think that the same question applies in, in somewhat different ways to every kind of, uh, of art that, that we take now. Because there's a sense in which proceeding with art as the thing that you do with your life is a vote of confidence in the order of things that they will continue, that the, this system, the system that we feel is so destructive, will muddle through. But there will be a posterity to enjoy our works. Uh, and most writers I know operate under conditions of false consciousness in the sense that, on one hand, we are desperately unhappy and don't believe that to be the case. We know that we're heading for some kind of disaster. I uh, heard on the radio last night that the uh, concentration of methane gas in the atmosphere is increasing at, at the rate of 1% a year, largely as a result of two benign activities, rearing cattle and, uh, 
and increasing the, the, the amount of land brought under cultivation for rice paddies, two very benign activities, one in which many women are engaged, by the way. Uh, but in any case, the situation is very desperate, as we all know, uh, and, uh, but yet we continue to write. So I was forced to look at myself again, as I have, and to, and to realize that the amount of denial that goes into following a literary career under these circumstances, to recognize literature as a compelled activity in some powerful way, and uh, to remind myself that I, and I think everyone who makes this choice, has an obligation to write works with as much acuity, as much relevance, as much, as much point uh, in relation to the, 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 the power, the, the crisis developing around it as, as can be mustered. Um, I think Crystal Wolf achieves a good deal of that. I think it's not a perfect book in many ways, especially the second half. Uh, but, uh, but that needs to be done. And I, I, what I want to say is that what I've said about writers and, uh, and, uh, and social activism applies to everybody in this room except Grace Paley. <laughs> Thank you. hoping to have a, a varied panel, and we <laughs> succeeded beyond our wildest dreams, didn't we? <laughs> uh, now, if there are any questions, comments that you'd like to address, yes. I want to uh, commend you <laughs> Well, there has to be a first. Do you want to? Be macho. Uh, no, I Well, if you want a moment to collect yourself, we can have somebody else. Also, I should add that uh, if any of the panelists wish to address each other or get up and <laughs> be physical about it, uh, that's welcome too. Yes. Oh no, that, I, that wasn't, the, that wasn't the, the burden of my remarks at all. In fact, uh, it's the opposite of, that's, that's the opposite of what I was saying. The, the, everybody, I'm a total pluralist, and everybody should be, should be working for peace in their own, in their own way, and, and certainly that's understood. Uh, 
what I was addressing was a tendency on the part of, not of men to, to say that women shouldn't work for peace, or, or, but the consequences, some of the side consequences of women defining the, the, the struggle for peace as something that is generically or characteristically female, which is a, a, a kind of an emanation from this book, a kind of an emanation from some of the things that the other panelists have said, and something that is pretty overt and evident in, in in a, in, a good, in a part of the peace movement today. I'm, I'm raising a question about that, but this is in, in no way meant to discourage it, uh, clearly. There's uh, a question in the back. Yes. Yes, uh, the person who's standing up. Uh, if you'd come to the front and talk into the microphone, then we could all hear you. citizen. You seem to throw out all of American uh, literature by your remarks, <coughs> sort of lowbrow, white bread, suburban claptrap, uh, which I found rather insulting. But uh, I'd like to know what you think of the works of people like Toni Morrison, Alice Walker, Gloria Nagler, James Baldwin, Ralph Ellison, Langston Hughes, Maya Angelou, uh, Vicky Gen uh, Geneva Giovanni. Do you consider them uh, bourgeois, low-brow, white bread? I think you uh, misheard my remarks. I was talking about mainstream, commercially marketable fiction. Well, Toni Morrison is on Wait, the bestseller list for 24 weeks. Answering your that is, in Wolf's terms, uh, Marxist terms, you know, uh, being judged for its capitalist productivity and not uh, anything else. And then I separated minority fiction. I ended by saying, listen to the voices of the minority. Yes, and uh, if you had read two weeks ago my review of Gloria Naylor's novel, you would know that uh, I think well many of the people that on your list. Yes, well, it would have been nice if you mentioned uh, the efforts of so-called minority people in literature, and you didn't. Not to speak of the journalists who have covered a lot of material of colonialism, the war in Vietnam, and even movie makers. I think you've made a very gross statement. Go ahead, Jeff. I'll repeat it. You, okay. If I can catch it, I'll repeat it. I didn't follow your point entirely. Mm -hmm. uh, you accused Twister of making an essentialist, you know, inclining toward an essentialist position. Yes. But women, you uh, were a characterization of male behavior in the field of female, and in fact, in some way, made an essentialist description of male behavior. I would like to change the perspective of both in some sense. Uh, 
Why, why don't you like, summarize to, to that yeah. point? I, I think, yeah, but I, I think I, 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 that question puts very clearly. Uh, do you want to, excuse me, Norman, do you want to uh, yes, okay. summarize that as you Okay, as, as well as I can. Eva said uh, I had set up a, 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 an essentialist, I'm, I'm attributing to Crystal Wolf a kind of essentialist position, that is, women are more specific because of, I, basically, I mentioned a biocultural role for women and that that, that played its way uh, into the, working out of the character and her, her acuity and her opposition to war, but that I had not fully characterized men as, uh, that I was verging on an essentialist characterization of men uh, uh, in my talk about military metaphors and the way those, those affect uh, life in our time. She made the further point that, that uh, she thought that the way that that because the women were servants, this uh, inclined them to a pacific role. And that Christopher Wolf was saying that because they were at the bottom of the, of, the, of the social pyramid, they were being inclined to a pacific role. And I disagree with this in a, in a pretty fundamental way. Um, pacific behavior by people at the bottom of, of society is not, is not uh, normal or usual or or expected. Uh, the, the most violent sectors of, of society at the present time are the, the people who are, at the, are the most oppressed, the most at the bottom in every society that we can look at. So that I don't, I mean, I think that, that that's a dubious proposition to start with. That's true of South Africa? The most violent people in South Africa, the people that the people who are no, the people who are. I'm not saying that there isn't all kinds of violence. I would say no. You said categorically the most violent. I would say yes. The people who, at at this moment, the most absolute violence being practiced in South Africa is being practiced by the most oppressed in the townships. Yes, do you know? Four hundred people have been killed in Peter Maritzburg. Men, women, children, babies by opposing groups, out of control, opposing groups of black activists in Qatar and UDF ANC. But I think what people are gasping at is, aren't you talking about the violence imposed by the government, inflicted by at the this, government? You can even say that about this yeah, country. I'm not, I'm not talking about the genesis of violence at this point. I'm, to, I'm talking about where violence 
Yeah, sure, the government is violent. I've been in South Africa. Yes, it's a, it's a, I'm not defending the government in any way. It's a horrible, it, the government is the cause of the violent situation that exists. But the fact that people are oppressed and are at the bottom does not make them pacific. That's the simple point that I'm trying to make. And so that, so that I'm not saying that the difference between men and women that I've alluded to is not basically a cultural difference. It is. I think the, op what are the, the, the larger point I'm trying to make is that the opposition to war is a created thing. It's an ethical and cultural decision made by men and women equally across the, across the bounds, of, of, almost against the, uh, the, the existing cultural tendencies and the ways we're raised. It is a created thing. It is a, it is a social invention. And we, we lose our force in, the, in making opposition to war if we, if we attempt to attribute it or to base a policy on the fact that it arises spontaneously in some other, uh, some other connection. I just want to say briefly that essentialist positions, people who say everything will be okay if the, dicta if the, if the proletariat takes, takes over, are in, the same, are in the same category. Or everything will be okay if market forces take over are in the same category. It's a kind of essentialism that, that simplifies the issues in which, which people are struggling and which writers are writing. Can I just add one little Yes, thing? I was going to say that maybe some of the panelists yes, might want to comment. Here, you can have mine. <laughs> I think uh, we mustn't also forget that the marketplace operates in uh, terrorism and that kind of violence. When I was researching the book for the terrorist bombing of Air India Flight 182 that went down off the coast of Ireland in June 1985, what we discovered was that terrorism is big international business and that groups are kept funded by various big powers. And so much of the violence, mobilizing of popular violence, is done by small bands of men and perhaps women, I didn't talk to any women terrorists, um, for whom it is financially very profitable to keep these struggles going. So it's just one other angle on um, the ethical and moral functions. Uh, Wesley or Carolyn, would you? want to get into this <laughs> because I, I think I just feel like um, some of the people here that um, I, I mean I, I know what you know Norman and I know what everybody here knows about about how things are in various parts of the world but I think that people here are a little bit um, appalled or <laughs> maybe it's just me I doubt it. Um, by the idea that violence, uh, that that that, I mean, or by the putting aside in some way of the terrible uh, um, uh, uh, governmental and class violence. It's, uh, I mean, it, it may be, it's maybe true that people in 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 uh, rages of agony, uh, and, and you're right in that are not pacific. I mean, we see that in, right now in, in, uh, in, um, in Palestine. It, not, they don't feel the least bit pacific. You know, they've been on the bottom, but they don't feel cool about it, right? So I understand that. But where does it, what is it all about? I mean, to, to, to speak about how, wait, I'm, I just want to go a little further with it. Um, 
to, to, to think about, about what violence really means or what war is, is, where it comes from, for me, the relation between men and women in this and, and the difference really is to just sit and look at television or listen to the radio day after day after day and listen to what the men are saying. And I, I know that there are spokes ladies for, you know, what's her name, for uh, Reagan and all that. But, but in general, what you have really is a continuous sound, really, of these guys really uh, uh, making war, talking about it, uh, and, uh, and that's what you hear. So I, I mean, that is the voice of, of, of doom, and that is the voice of terror. Uh, as far as what as terror is concerned, and to think of terrorists, uh, it's true that there are these people running around blowing things up and all that. But look what we're, I mean, how can you talk about terrorists and not think about, about uh, the armament that we're piling up? I, I, mean, I mean, if there are terrorists in this world... Yeah, I think about it all the time. But <laughs> I what, I was, what I was trying to say was that, was that what we have to do is understand why men talk about war on, the, on television and it seems completely normal. I'm trying, I'm trying to, huh? I'm, try, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to, to get to tease out what are the relations? Why does this go on? Why does it seem normal? Why are men attached to violent institutions? I'm proposing one way of looking at that, one way of analyzing it. I know that the government is violent. I hate it. I mean, it's, well, let, let's, ghastly, it's horrible. Let's let some more members of the audience speak. Lindsay? Uh, I started thinking, uh, what is the role of literature in all this? We're all pretty convinced of, of what's going on in the world with war making now. Uh, and I thought about uh, a particular uh, point in Cassandra where she talks about when she re-identified what she called we. And at first, that we was with the Trojan men. And at, at a certain point, there was a way, the way she identified we changed over to the women who were, in fact, not participating in the war anymore. They hadn't been listened to. Uh, there were also men in that group. But it was a group that defined itself uh, as a different we. So my own feeling, I guess, Norman, in regard to why does one make literature is that nobody makes literature on their own and all of us read one another, and there's a sense that by, and hopefully other people also read us, uh, that there's a hope that at a certain point, if enough people start thinking about these things and start talking about them, you don't have to figure it out yourself. But at least a, it's a beginning of, as Krista Wolf puts it, of defining a we, and I think that uh, Ms. Mukherjee very rightly said that certainly in the United States, but really it's a global consciousness, that the we is going to have to include a lot more different groups, uh, and we may find that one of the great, um, the most important aspect of American literature now is that in fact we do have so many voices and there can no longer be the we of men who are war-making men. And that's all I have to say. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. 
I just want to talk to, to a couple of, of issues. I get very nervous about aesthetic proscriptions from the right or from the left. And I value Nadine Gordimer, and I value that public perspective. But I think another way of looking at politics is that every time a woman writes about the experience of women, because it has been a secret for the past 2,000 years, because it has been a silenced experience, that is an important political con context. And I think it's adopting a too narrow male view to say that if one is not Nadine Gordimer, one is not writing politically. I think that Krista Wolf was, was making a very important statement uh, about inner life in the quest for Krista T, perhaps more effectively than she did in Cassandra. Um, when she wrote about Caroline von Gundrode and Kleist, who are God knows, fairly rarefied objects, she was talking about human consciousness from a female perspective. That's political. That's equally important. I think women writers can suffer from a kind of uh, reverse macho anxiety, where we're told that if we are writing about private life, it is not political, it is not important. And I think that's something we had to fight for. I think that's why there are no women's, important women's novels in the 50s and 60s. Because if you say that what is important is Norman Mailer's The Naked and the Dead, because it writes about war, then Eudora Welty is by definition not important. And I would very much like to get rid of that sort of narrow aesthetic. Um, or narrowing aesthetic. I don't think women should feel that if we're writing about mothers and daughters, which is a secret subject, that we're not writing about something as important as what Nadine Gordimer is writing about. I would just like to, to, to keep that caveat in the air. I'd like to also talk about something that Wesley talked about, uh, which is, does war making make a man attractive to a woman? Um, and I think that Wolf did deal with this in having Aeneas be Cassandra's lover in, in Cassandra. So it got very much more complicated. That's the kind of thing that a woman can tell us about, that kind of secret. What is it that makes a man attractive, exciting to a, to a woman? Um, that's news that we need to hear, too. And um, I think any time women talk about the inner lives of women, it's important news. Okay. Uh, Thank you, Mary. That's always that's the kind of statement we have to hear very regularly so that we can go home and <laughs> tomorrow and face our, our uh, may piece I of paper. Just very briefly yes. uh, to Mary, then. Um, I did Mary include Wolf. Krista Wolf as a political writer, and I think that power politics or political fiction is about power, about the oppressed and the oppressor. It doesn't have to be about war at all, but we must not be afraid to admit that we are writing political fiction in that <coughs> sense. To sneak it in, I think, is uh, an unworthy cop-out. Yes. Well, may I say something on a less intellectual Definitely. <laughs> um, oh, yes, yes, please come up. Uh, 
We can have a little music that we play while people are. Um, this derives from my own experience, and I'm somewhat puzzled by the, the the intellectual delving into motivation as to why men fight and women don't. Uh, at a very basic level, uh, of course, we're all brought up as boys. Uh, the background of wars, knowing that we are the ones who will be called upon. Look of you, Helen. Naomi had her hand up first. Did anyone put their hand up over there and I wasn't looking? No, okay. Wilfred Owen was killed in the last month of the First World War. He was a pacifist, but he went back. He could have gotten, he, uh, he was in the hospital during the war. He was wounded already, and uh, he could have gotten out, but he went back to his, quote, men. And this poem is a very tender poem, and it sort of, I would say, transgen transcends gender. Arms and the Boy, which, of course, is paraphrasing Virgil, Arms and the Man. Let the boy try along this bayonet blade how cold steel is, and keen with a hunger for blood. Blue with all malice, like a madman's flash, and thinly drawn with famishing for flesh. Lend him to stroke these blunt, blind bullet heads, that long to nuzzle in the hearts of lads, or show him cartridges of fine zinc teeth, sharp with the sharpness of grief or death. For his teeth seem for laughing round an apple, there curve no claws behind his fingers, supple. And God has grown no talons at his heels, nor antlers in the thickness of his curls. Ma? No, you go first. Uh, a from Marguerite Duras, 
the war. And uh, the war, uh, I guess, is over, but uh, she's waiting for, um, these are women at home waiting. April, opposite the fireplace and beside me, the telephone. To the right, the sitting room door and the passage. At the end of the passage, the front door. He might come straight here and ring the front door. Who's that? Me? Or he might phone from a transit center as soon as he got there. I'm back. I'm at the Lutetia to go through the formalities. There wouldn't be any warning. He'd phone. He'd arrive. Such things are possible. He's coming back anyway. He's not a special case. There's no particular reason why he shouldn't come back. There's no reason why he should, but it's possible. He'd ring. Who's there? Me. Lots of other things. Like this do happen. In the end, they broke through at Avranche. And in the end, the Germans withdrew. In the end, I survived to the end of the war. I must be careful. It wouldn't be so very extraordinary if he did come back. It would be normal. I must be careful not to turn it into something extraordinary. The extraordinary is unexpected. I must be sensible. I'm waiting for Robert L., expecting him. And he's coming back. Nothing, day or night, D, D brings me combat. In the final edition, the Russians have captured a metro station in Berlin, but Zukov's guns are still surrounding and pounding the ruins of Berlin less than 100 yards apart. Satine and Renault have been taken. The Americans are on the Danube. All Germany is in their hands. It's difficult to occupy a country. What can they do with it? I become like Madame Bordes. I don't get up anymore. Madame Katz does the shopping and the cooking. She has a bad heart. She has bought me some American milk. I believe Madame Katz would think less about her daughter if I were really ill. Her daughter's a cripple. She had a stiff leg from tuberculosis of the bone. She was Jewish. I found out at the center that they kill cripples. We are starting to find out about the Jews. Madame Katz waited for six months, from April to November 1945. Her daughter had died in March 1945. It took nine months to trace the name. I don't speak to her about Robert L. She's left her daughter's description everywhere, at the centers, at all the frontiers, with all her family, you never know. She's bought 50 cans of American milk, 20 kilos of sugar, calcium, phosphate, alcohol, eau de cologne, rice, potatoes. Madam Cat says, word for word, all her underwear is washed and mended and ironed. I've had her black coat lined and the pockets seen too. I've had everything in a big trunk with moth balls, but I've aired it. Everything's ready. 
I've had new tips put on her shoes and darned her stockings. I don't think I've forgotten anything. Madam Katz is challenging God. I heard stifled cries on the stairs, a stir, a clatter of feet, then doors banging and shouts. It was them, it was them back from Germany. I couldn't stop myself. I started to run downstairs to escape into the streets. Beauchamp and Dee were supporting him under the arms. They'd stopped on the first floor. He was looking up. I can't remember exactly what happened. He must have looked at me and recognized me and smiled. I shrieked. No, that I didn't want to see. I started to run again up the stairs this time. I was shrieking. I remember that. The war emerged in my shrieks. Six years without uttering a cry, I found myself in some neighbor's apartment. They forced me to drink some rum. They poured it into my mouth into the shrieks. I want to read just a few fragments from Anna Akhmatova's great poem sequence, Requiem. Uh, I think you all know that her first husband was killed in the early 20s. Uh, She was by then estranged from him. They had had one son, and in the middle or late 30s, that son was imprisoned as he was several times during his life. And the preface to this, uh, there's a prose preface to this sequence of poems, which relates how Akhmatova stood for 17 months in the line in front of the prison, trying to bring food or notes or whatever she could to her son. And she stood there with other women day after day, rarely getting to the head of the line, never knowing whether anything she brought got to her imprisoned son. And at the end of 17 months, someone in the line recognized that this was Akhmatova and spoke her name And another woman turned to her and said, can you describe this? And she said, yes, I can. And she said, a smile came over what had been that woman's face. Uh, These are some, some fragments from the poem. This is a fragment from the moment when the son is first imprisoned. The quiet dawn flows quietly The yellow moon goes into the house, goes in with its cap askew. The yellow moon sees the shadow. This woman is sick. This woman is alone. Husband in the grave, son in prison, pray for me. This dot was written in about 36 or 37. This one is written in 1939. Verdict. The stone word fell on my still living breast. Never mind, I was prepared. Somehow I'll come to terms with it. 
Today I have much work to do. I must finally kill my memory. I must so my soul can turn to stone. I must learn to live again or else. The hot summer rustle, like holiday time outside my window. I have felt this coming for a long time, this bright day and the empty house. And this poem of eight lines is dated over three years, 1940 to 1943, Crucifixion. The choir of angels glorified the great hour. The heavens melted in flames. He said to his father, Why hast thou forsaken me? And to his mother, O weep not for me. Mary Magdalene smote her breast and wept. The disciple whom he loved turned to stone. But where the mother stood in silence, nobody even dared to look. And there's a little introduction to the whole sequence of poems, a little verse dated 1961. And somehow she made this history of her own life, I think, stand for what happened to Russia during the whole term of the Second World War. And the 1961 verse is, No, not under the vault of another sky, not under the shelter of other wings. I was with my people then, there where my people were doomed to be. I, uh, I don't think there are any other people, so we'll close this. But um, we'll close it for a couple of reasons. We, we would, it would be very nice if people could go and have refreshments and talk to each other a little bit before we all go home. Thank you all for coming. Thank you.